Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7. And uh, as I said, if you, um, oh, the ushers, uh, if you can, um, if you have those sheets of paper, if you didn't receive uh, the half sheet of uh, sermon notes for this morning, uh, please slip up your hand. They'll be happy to, uh, to give you one. Matthew chapter 7. And let's look together at verses 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Let's pray together. Our Father, it's our desire that as we study the scriptures this morning that our hearts would be transformed by uh, what, we, what we see from you and your word. Uh, Lord, let us not easily walk from this place and forget what we hear, but let this uh, shape um, every aspect of our life as we seek to be followers who represent you well and um, love and are faithful to one another well. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now this morning we're going to divert from our series in Matthew and I uh, want to preach on the topic of Thanksgiving. And so I, I have a PowerPoint this morning, which is again unusual, but Thanksgiving, uh, the cure to a critical spirit. I have been planning to preach on this particular topic for uh, a little over a month, uh, because there was a certain event uh, in my uh, life that happened in, uh, in the last month uh, that really caused me to think about some of these things. Uh, so about a month ago, I was over in uh, East Lansing to hear a lecture series uh, by Carl Truman on uh, matters of gender and sexuality and some of the confusion that's taking place in, uh, in, our, uh, in our society. And uh, it was an informative lecture as the author went through different aspects of, uh, of history and how we got to this particular cultural moment. And it was his final session, though, that this particular point stood out to me. And the final session was, how are Christians supposed to respond to the chaos and confusion of the day? And he offered a number of solutions. And, and one of the things he said was that Christians need to increase in their thanksgiving. 
as a response to the confusion of gender and sexuality that exists out there in our world. And I thought, well, that's an interesting uh, point to, to bring up in terms of a Christian's response. But he went on to elaborate and identify the fact that uh, as Christians, we can be so fixated and so, uh, and so um, think of a better word, maybe consumed uh, with what's taking place in our society that we, become, we begin to become marked by a critical and negative spirit. So rather than shining as lights in a dark world and people who have a confidence and thankfulness in God that he's in control and has all things in control, we become marked by this negative spirit. And so he submitted this idea that one of the solutions or cures to a critical spirit is for believers to grow in their thanksgiving to God. I thought that was an interesting point. And over the the last month, uh, that particular thought has been on my mind about the cure to a critical spirit being increased thanksgiving in, in God. And as I thought about this topic of the last month, I, I began to be increasingly burdened about my own critical spirit, my own tendency to, to, to see the negative or to be critical of things and to be critical of people. And so I've started to ask myself when I notice these types of things in my life, so okay, well what what am I thankful for? And then to try to, 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 to identify those things for which God, has, which God has blessed and to thank him for those things rather than focusing on what I perceive to be wrong in, in my life. And I think if you're like me, that this message is probably helpful for you as, as well. The, the tendency we have to identify the negative, to have a critical spirit, and the, the need to increase in our thanksgiving. And so that's what we want to unpack this idea this morning. Uh, thankfulness as a cure for a critical spirit. Now we're going to look at a, a number of different passages this morning, uh, but I, we start here in Matthew 7 because this is the first one. Now, the, we, in order to bring some sort of order to our study this morning, we want to consider four points. We want to consider uh, the definition of a critical spirit. Then secondly, we want to consider the prevalence of of a critical spirit. Thirdly, we want to consider the danger of a critical spirit. And then lastly, we want to consider the cure for a critical spirit. So let's begin, first of all, with a definition of a a critical spirit. So what do we mean when we refer to here in our study of a critical spirit? The the phrase critical spirit and the, the words that might be associated with it, they don't there's not a clear biblical idea about this or, or the phrase critical spirit doesn't appear in Scripture. So it's important for us to assemble some sort of definition as we, as we approach this study this morning. And I think that if we connect a number of Scripture passages that we can sort of get a, an idea or a definition of, of what it means to be a critical spirit or what's behind uh, this idea of a critical spirit. So I think that if we tie passages together, we can see that a critical spirit is marked by three things. Okay, number one, it's marked by a keen awareness of the shortcomings of others combined with a profound ignorance of one's own shortcomings. And this is the gist of Matthew chapter 7, right? So Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 to 5 is this familiar passage on, on, on being 
on, on being judgmental, right? So verse 1, we have that, that phrase, that, that, that verse that everybody knows. Judge not that you be not judged. And believers and unbelievers, they know this verse. In fact, you'll, you'll be impressed to know that the first single that Bob Marley ever recorded was called Judge Not. And it went something like this. Don't you look at me so smug and say I'm going bad. Who are you to judge me and the life that I live? I know that I'm not perfect and that I don't claim to be. So before you point your fingers, be sure your hands are clean. All right, so a little wisdom for us from, from Bob Marley this morning, okay? Now, of course, the way the world uses this phrase and this idea of, of, of judging is not always consistent with the meaning of, of Jesus in this passage. So Jesus here, to be clear, is forbidding a certain kind of judgment. He's not forbidding all judgments across the board, okay? It's clear in Scripture that, that as believers were to be discerning people who are, are making judgments about people and situations, especially about how they relate to God, this, the spiritual condition of their lives. In fact, this passage alone bears that out. If you look at verse 6, we are to distinguish between those individuals who respond well to spiritual things and those who respond to spiritual things like wild animals, dogs, and pigs. And so it takes a certain amount of judgment and discernment to distinguish between the individuals that verse 6 has in mind. If you skip down to verses 15 and 16, uh, we're told to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And the Bible says, and Jesus says here, you will recognize them by their fruits. Well, the only way to recognize sheep from wolves is to, to, have, to make an assessment or a judgment, or as, uh, as we might say, to be fruit inspectors, okay? discerning between those who have a proper relationship with God and those who do not. So the Bible does not forbid all judgments. Okay? It's talking here about a certain kind of judgment. And verses 3 to 5 bear this judgment out. What, is verses, what do verses 3 to 5 say? Jesus explains, he says, Why is it? That you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, Jesus says. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So there are two things that are taking place in this passage. There is this acute awareness of the faults and shortcomings of other people, and there is this profound ignorance of our own faults and shortcomings. And this is the kind of critical spirit that Jesus is condemning. There is this hypocrisy that sees clearly in one case and is utterly blind in another. Now, we'll come back to unpack this idea and apply it in, in a few moments, but let's move on then to the second aspect of our critical, of our critical spirit. So the, the first idea where a critical spirit is marked by is this keen awareness of the shortcomings of others combined with a profound ignorance of one's own shortcomings. And secondly, we see a harsh heart inclined toward tearing down rather than building up. Now, for this, I want you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. 
a harsh heart inclined toward tearing down rather than building up. And when you get to Ephesians 4, skip down to near the end of the chapter in verse 29. He says in verse 29, he says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Okay, now, now notice two things about verse 29. Notice first the meaning of the word corrupt or the meaning of the word corrupting. He says, let no corrupting talk uh, proceed from your mouth. Other translations have this word unwholesome. Now, I think that can be misleading at times because the, the, the phrase unwholesome, we tend to think uh, that we're not to say things that are sexually lewd or immoral in, in nature. And that's, that's involved in this idea of unwholesome talk, but I think there's more involved in, in this idea of, of corrupting speech. The word corrupt, it refers to more than just perverse or lewd language, okay? The word corrupt uh, that's used here in this passage is found eight times in the New Testament. Six of those times, it's talking about fruit and fruit trees, okay? Jesus says you identify them uh, by their fruit, or can a, can a bad tree or a corrupt tree produce good fruit? Uh, one time, uh, this word corrupt is used in the context, context of fish, Okay, they're deciding, deciphering between the good fish and the, the bad fish. And then the other place where this word is used is here in terms of our speech. Now think with me about this idea of, of fruit for a minute. Okay? What is corrupt fruit? Well, it's fruit that is rotten or decaying. And sometimes decaying is a translation of this word corrupt. So for example, you might have a batch of bananas uh, in your kitchen. And uh, there may be a banana that has a, a corrupt or bad spot on it. And you can cut that off and you can eat the rest of the banana. But before long, if you leave those bananas set, it's not going to be long before they are entirely corrupt and decaying. And that's the idea that Paul has in mind in verse 29 when he says, let no corrupting talk come from your mouth. He's not simply talking about sexually perverse things or lewd things. He's talking about a type of speech that has the ability to rot and decay those who hear it. Okay, so the meaning of the word corrupt is that, that it causes rot and decay. So there, there's, there's not to be this type of speech named among believers. But notice that we get something more of the, the meaning of, of corruption when we, when we look, secondly, at the opposite of, of this in verse 29. Okay, so no corrupting talk is to come from our mouth, but only that speech that what? Builds up fits the occasion, and ministers grace to the hearer. Okay, so, so stop here and notice then this second mark of a critical spirit. Okay, the second mark of a critical spirit is it's a heart inclined toward tearing down rather than building up. Now you might be like, okay, well, I, I hear you saying this, but, and I see that verse 29 deals with critical words, but you're speaking of a critical heart. Okay. Well, notice that wherever we find harsh and critical words being spoken and, and tearing down, 
that there is always a critical heart that lies behind those words. Right? So I think Jesus says it best when he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when we find ourselves in positions where we are tearing someone down, or we're critical of someone, or we're having this critical spirit, that behind it lies a heart that is inclined in that direction. And we'll, we'll talk about this in just a few minutes. So we can all be guilty of, of harsh and critical spirit that seeks to tear down rather than build up. The third aspect of a critical spirit is a constant focus on the negative expressed in a spirit of grumbling and complaining. Now for this, please turn over to Matthew, or it's Matthew Philippians chapter 2, where we had our scripture reading. Philippians chapter 2. And in this passage, you, you notice in verse 14, Paul rebukes this kind of, of, of critical and complaining spirit, right? In verse 14, he says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, something we need to know about this particular passage is it's the, it's the end of, of a lengthy section that Paul is writing that begins in chapter 1, verse 27, and goes all the way to chapter 2, verse 18. And the theme of this section that begins in 127 and goes down to 218 is on the importance of unity. So if you look back at chapter 1 and verse 27, he begins this section by saying, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So that's where he begins a section on the importance of unity. He continues it in chapter 2 and verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Verse 5, have this mind that also existed in Christ Jesus. So he's writing this, this theme of, of unity from 127 all the way to 218. And the last issue he addresses is found really in verse 14 when he says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. In other words, one of the primary threats to the unity in the church of Philippi was a grumbling and complaining spirit, or we might say was a critical spirit that was focusing on the negative and consumed with, with things and with, with, with what was wrong. Okay? And this is the kind of critical spirit that's easy for you and I to develop. Okay? We, we develop this perspective that, that everything is, is negative and we always see the problems rather than seeing the good that God is doing. Now, we tend to call these people pessimists, but they refer to themselves as realists. Uh, but we might say that's a distinction without a difference. Okay? But in either case, we can become fixated on what is negative and be identified by this critical and complaining spirit. I mean, just talk to anybody who watches Fox News for the duration of their day. Uh, they pick up on this critical spirit and it tends to dominate their view of life and, and culture. Okay, so this is our definition. It's a critical spirit that is marked by, first, a keen awareness of the shortcomings of others combined with a profound ignorance of one's own shortcomings, a harsh heart inclined toward tearing down rather than building up, and a constant focus on the negative expressed in grumbling and complaining. Well, let's move on then, secondly, to notice 
the prevalence of a critical spirit. So as we talk about this idea of a critical spirit, what I want us to notice is how common this is in our own heart and life. So why is it that a critical spirit is so common to flow from our our heart? I think there are three reasons. Number one, it's because the critical spirit is justifiable. Okay? So in other words, a, a critical spirit is common because there's so much to be critical about. Right? I'm reminded, I'm reminded of uh, this, the Winston Churchill quote when he described a fellow politician and he said, he referred to him as a modest man with much to be modest about. And I thought that was a, a, a funny uh, way to put it, but it sort of describes our critical spirit. Like, yeah, the reason we're critical is because look around us. There is much to be critical about. And so it, it's almost in a sense that that our critical spirit then seems to be justified because of all the things that are going wrong around us. So the political and economic climate of our day, I think you'd agree, leaves much, much room for criticism. And I think we share this world with sinners who constantly fail to meet our expectations and, and, and they're just set up for criticism. So we're married to sinners and we have friends that are sinners, and we have children that are sinners, and we have fellow church members who are sinners, and we have pastors who are sinners. And all of these people, they, 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 they fail to meet our expectations, and everywhere we look, there is room for criticism. So it's like we have a critical heart, and then there's all these critical people. They're like fuel on the fire of a critical spirit that we already have. So that's one reason, because of how easy it is to look around and see opportunities for criticism. But number two, a critical spirit is natural. Now by this I mean that it is the natural inclination of our heart to be critical and and hypercritical, to have this spirit of complaining. See, in each of our hearts as believers, there is a war that is waging between the spirit and the flesh. So at salvation, the spirit moves in and begins to to wage war against those natural desires. And one of the areas in which the spirit, or against which the spirit is waging war, is this tendency toward a critical spirit. I want you to listen to this in Galatians 5, 17 and following. So Galatians 5, 17 says this, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So in the heart, there's this wrestling. But then as Galatians 5 goes on, it begins to identify the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit. And those two things are are waging war. Okay, the works of the flesh are evident, Paul says. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. But then he says this, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. Okay, just hold those in your mind for a second. On the contrary, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So what we see in this passage is that all the sinful desires 
that, that lie beneath a critical spirit are already existing in our heart and waging war against the spirit, right? So just to name them again, enmity and strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and, and envy, all of those things lie behind this idea of, of a critical spirit. And they just so naturally come from us because that's in our natural man, those are the things that exist. Those were our inclinations prior to salvation. And that's why it's necessary for the spirit to move in and begin to renovate our spiritual lives so that we become marked not by a critical spirit, but that we become marked by things like love and patience with people and gentleness and, and self-control rather than being critical. All these virtues that counteract a critical spirit in our lives. Thirdly, the reason we are, uh, the critical spirit is so prevalent is because a critical spirit comes so easily. Okay, just think about Ephesians 4.29, where we're called to, to build up with our speech rather than tear down but destruction comes much easier than building. Okay, I've used this illustration numerous times, but I think it's fitting for this idea that when you want to do some sort of construction project in your house, and maybe you're taking out a wall or something like that, and people are like, well, if you need any help, let me know. But they're only good for the demolition because it's, it's easy to do that. It's not easy to do the things like repair drywall and do plumbing and electrical. That takes skill and, and thought and, and time. And the same is true for our, our words and, and the posture of our heart. It is, it is so easy for us to see the negatives in other people and to think negatively about them and to destroy them with our words rather than to build them up because it takes time and thought and the work of the Spirit to build one up. Maybe you've seen the movie uh, Ratatouille. Uh, it's uh, a Disney Pixar movie, and I I've always been kind of partial to it. I've, I enjoy it, and, and uh, ever since Brooke was young, we would watch Ratatouille together. It's about a rat who learns how to cook. And, um, okay, you laugh, so some of you have not seen Ratatouille. Okay, all right. So it's about a rat who, uh, who learns how to cook, and he essentially becomes the main chef in this human restaurant, albeit he's, he's undercover in, uh, in the way that he's, he's cooking. He's actually in this guy's hat, and he, he kind of helps him learn all of the, the motions and the ingredients of things that should, should go into food. The, the climactic event in the movie is when the food critic, Anton Ego, he, he's a cynical and, and easily displeased restaurant critic, he comes to review the restaurant. And as he does, he's both humbled and he's impressed by the fact that this rat has the ability to cook so well. And so he writes in the newspaper the following day, and I love these words. Listen to this. He says this. In many ways, the work of a critic is easy. We risk very little, yet enjoy a position over those who offer up their work and themselves to our judgment. Let me read that one more time. In many ways, the work of a critic is easy. We risk very little, yet enjoy a position over those who offer up their work and themselves to our judgment. And how true that is. 
So our wife works hard to prepare a meal. She offers up her work with much labor, and we shoot it down with a dismissive, critical comment. Or a pastor labors all week to preach a sermon. He goes five or ten minutes too long, and it's like, we're not thankful for that, but, but we're critical of those five or two minutes that we will never, ever get back. You know, in, in most realms, in, in the church, in the family, in our employment, it's often those who are the least invested who are the most critical. They sit back and easily weigh in with their judgment because it takes a lot more work to plug in and solve the problem. Okay, so we've seen the definition of a critical spirit, and we've seen the prevalence of a critical spirit, but now let me highlight the dangers of a critical spirit. I think there are at least three that I've identified. First of all, a critical spirit ruins relationships. You don't have to turn to this passage, but listen to it if you would in Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now listen to this. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. It's interesting that, interesting that this passage, what it has to say to husbands and fathers. In the parallel text of Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul waxes eloquent, love your wife as Christ loved the church and, and love her as your own body. But here, his command to Paul is really simple and it's really short. And it's this, love her and do not be harsh with her. And I think Paul is addressing this tendency that husbands can have, especially, to be critical of their wife. But the text continues, and he says something similar to fathers. Do not provoke your children. But then he says this, lest they become discouraged. And what he's doing in this passage is, is he's saying, if you're harsh and critical with your children, it's going to ruin your relationship with them. I mean, how many of us have, have known a, a critical parent and seen the, the results of a critical kid and how that relationship dynamic has been affected? And it's not just fathers with their children. It's, it's any relationship that we have. If our relationships are marked by a critical spirit toward one another, it will inevitably do damage to the relationship. So a husband who's critical sucks the life out of his marriage. A father who's critical is, sucks the life out of his relationship with his children. Pastors who are critical suck the life out of their congregations, and congregations that are critical suck the life out of their pastors. Bosses who are critical suck the life out of their employees and vice versa. So I want you to see, first of all, that this is a real danger. Like if we become marked by a critical spirit, then this is what the damage will be to our relationships. Okay, so I want us to be, to be sober by this and be aware of this, of this reality. Secondly, a critical spirit destroys our testimony. Okay, now, you don't have to turn back there, but we were in, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, where Paul said, do all things without grumbling and disputing. But do you remember what he says next? He says, do all things without grumbling and disputing, 
that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So another reason or one of the dangers of, 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 of a critical spirit is it destroys our testimony. Okay? If we're marked by grumbling and disputing, it's going to hinder our ability to be blameless in front of an unbelieving world. Right? What does Jesus say? You will know my children by their love. Not their WWJD bracelet. Not a tattoo that has a cross on it. And not a bumper sticker. That's not how we identify as believers. But by a loving spirit that builds one another up and doesn't destroy. That's how we know the marks of true Christianity. Lastly, a critical spirit destroys our own heart. Okay, if we allow a critical spirit to go unchecked in our life, I think we run the risk of being hypercritical. Now you say, well, what's the difference between being critical and being hypercritical? Well, it's obviously not an inspired idea, but I think this is what it is, okay? A, a critical spirit, I think, is a tendency that we all have to, to focus on the negative. And I think it's something we're going to always battle with until the Lord returns. But when we become hypercritical, I think it's that stage where we lose all ability to see anything good in the other person. And we've all either been there ourselves or we've seen this kind of relationship where seeing the evidences of grace in, in someone is, becomes impossible because our spirit toward them has been marked by a bitter, critical spirit. And, and, and that's, that's a very dangerous place to be in our relationships where we can no longer give grace and give mercy because our judgment is so clouded by a hypercritical spirit. So we need to be on guard against this temptation. Okay, so we've seen the definition of a critical spirit, the prevalence of a critical spirit, the danger of a critical spirit. Now let's consider the cure of a critical spirit, the cure for a critical spirit. Now I've already mentioned that thankfulness is, is the cure to the critical spirit, but this is really just number five uh, on the list of, of five things. So we'll come to thankfulness last, but five ways we can battle uh, this critical spirit in our lives. Number one is to remember, remember your own shortcomings. Okay, that's what Jesus says, right? That's his exhortation. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And then you'll be able to, to see. See, I think most of the time when we are critical of other people, we tend to minimize or downplay our own faults and our own shortcomings. And I think we view ourselves as spiritually superior to those we're criticizing. And Jesus is saying, listen, don't, don't be a hypocrite. Okay? You have your failings as well. So take the time to identify and address your own issues, and then you'll be equipped to more graciously deal with the failings of your brother. And notice that Jesus doesn't say you should never deal with the shortcomings and failings of, of other people. Rather, he condemns a spirit of hypocritical judgmentalism that downplays our, our own faults and focuses on the failures of others. And I think that's the tendency of our, our heart. So if we remember that, that we too have shortcomings, 
And if we remember that Christ has forgiven us of our shortcomings, then we will be equipped to then forgive as God has forgiven us through Christ Jesus. So if we're going to fight against this critical spirit, it comes with this, this, this remembering our, our own shortcomings and failures in, in our life and the goodness of God to forgive us from those things. Number two, remember the futility of a critical spirit. Remember the, the futility of a critical spirit. There, there's a phrase in Matthew 6, and I, I, you don't have to turn there because it's a familiar passage. I'll, I'll, remind, it, I'll remind you of it. That, that it proves helpful. It doesn't really have to do with a critical spirit, but there's a connection that I think is, is really neat to make. In Matthew 6, you remember Jesus has a lengthy section on, on not worrying and commanding uh, believers uh, that they should abstain from worry. And in this passage on worry, he, he gives several reasons. Uh, like, number one, if, if God cares for the birds of the air and he cares for, for flowers of the, of the field... How much more will he care for you? And he goes on and he says that, that worry is something that, that characterizes the Gentiles. For, for they fret and worry about these things, but your heavenly Father knows your needs and he, and he meets your needs, so you shouldn't worry about these. And, and he goes on lastly to say that you shouldn't worry because, about tomorrow because uh, sufficient for today are the troubles thereof. So don't pull all the troubles tomorrow, uh, for tomorrow's troubles and bring them into today's troubles because today has enough troubles of its own. But there's one phrase in there that, that strikes me as interesting, and that's in Matthew 6, verse 27. He says this, and, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? That's, that's the, the simple truth Jesus gives that's, that's interesting. Okay? A reason you shouldn't worry, because it doesn't accomplish anything in your life. It's not going to make your life longer. In fact, it has the potential to make your life shorter. It has the ability to ruin the quality of your life. Okay? So don't worry because it doesn't do anything, Jesus says in, in Matthew 6. But the same could be said for a critical spirit. Don't have a critical spirit because it doesn't accomplish anything. Okay? Nothing, is, nothing good is achieved by your, your critical spirit. It doesn't benefit others. It doesn't benefit you. It only makes things worse. It's not going to lengthen your life to be extra critical. It only serves to ruin your relationships, your testimony, and your own heart. So the next time you're tempted to be critical, remember how foolish it is and how it's not going to add anything to your life to, to point out the negative in others. Thirdly, the third cure for, can you hit the down arrow there, Marshall? Is to remember the big picture. Remember the big picture. I'll just say this, that some of the things about which we are so critical are often so unimportant. And when I say remember the big picture, remember this, that, that God has placed us on this earth with a, a, a purpose and a mission. The purpose to glorify him, the mission to make and mature disciples. And a critical spirit really distracts us from the, 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 the big things that God wants us to accomplish. And so we spend our time 
critical about some of these things that aren't even important, and all that time we're being distracted from what God has called us to do, to be faithful parents and to be faithful believers and and faithful neighbors who are sharing Christ. And when we're consumed by a negative spirit, we fail to accomplish what Christ has has told us to do. Okay, letter D, nextly, or the number four, uh, fourth bullet point for you, okay, is uh, to remember love. So my my battery might be done, so remember love uh, is the next one. Now the focus of 1 Corinthians 13 probably says it best. When we're tempted to be patient, we need, or when we're tempted to be critical, we need to remember love, that love is patient, it is kind, it is not rude, it is not irritable or resentful, it, it bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Now, how many of those statements in 1 Corinthians 13 counteract and fight against a critical spirit? Well, how about patience? If we're patient with one another, we're not going to be critical. If we're, if we're kind, we're not going to be critical. If we're not resentful, then we will not be critical. If we're not irritable, we will not be critical. Okay, because genuine love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So Charles Spurgeon says it best, that where faults where faults are always thick, where love is thin. Okay, so where our love is, is, is short with people, we will see their, their faults more clearly. In fact, take, your, take these, uh, that piece of paper that I gave you there, and I just wanted to read this excerpt from Spurgeon's sermon on finding the faults in others. And you'll see because of the way it's worded and the imagery that Spurgeon gives, it's going to be better if you follow along and read it. But I thought this was something that you might want to take home and have on your refrigerator so your wife knows not to be so critical of, uh, of, of, your, of your faults. So, and all the men said, amen. Yeah, all right, thank you. All right. This is helpful, though. Listen to this. If we would always recollect that we live among men who are imperfect... We should not be in such a fever when we find out our friend's failings. What's rotten will rend, and cracked pots will leak. Blessed is he who expects nothing of poor flesh and blood, for he shall never be disappointed. The best of men are men at best, and the best wax will melt. It is a good horse that never stumbles, and a good wife that never grumbles, but surely... Such horses and wives are only found in fool's paradise, where dumplings grow on trees. In this wicked world, the straightest timber has knots in it, and the cleanest field of wheat has its share of weeds. The most careful driver one day upsets the cart. The cleverest cook spills a little broth. And as I know to my sorrow, a very decent plowman will now and then break the plow and often make a crooked furrow. It is foolish to turn off a tried friend because of a failing or two. For you may get rid of a one-eyed nag and buy a blind one. Being all of us full of faults, we ought to keep two bears and learn to bear and forbear with one another. Since we all live in glass houses, we should none of us throw stones. Everybody laughs when the saucepan says to the kettle, "How how black you are. Other men's imperfections show us our imperfections. 
for one sheep is much like another. And if there's an apple in my neighbor's eye, there is no doubt one in mine. We ought to see our neighbors as mirrors to see our own faults in and mend in ourselves what we see in them. I have no patience with those who poke their noses into every man's house to smell out his faults and put on magnifying glasses to discover their neighbor's flaws. Such folks had better look at home. They might see the devil where they least expected. What we wish to see, we shall see or think we see. Faults are always thick where love is thin. A white cow is all black if your eye chooses to make it so. If we sniff long enough at rose water, we shall find out that it has a bad smell. It would be far more pleasant business, at least for other people, if fault finders would turn their dogs to hunt out the good points in other folks. The game would pay better, and nobody would stand with a pitchfork to keep the huntsman off his farm. As for our faults, it would take a large slate to hold the account of them. But thank God, we know where to take them and how to get rid of, how to get them, how to get the better of them. With all our faults, God loves us still if we are trusting in his son. Therefore, let us not be downhearted, but hope to live and learn and do some good service before we die. <laughs> Lastly, the final cure to a critical spirit is to remember thanksgiving. To remember thanksgiving. Instead of maintaining a critical spirit, it is helpful for us to stop and to consider what can I be thankful for? Because the ways the Lord has blessed us are incredible. And to have a critical spirit crowd out a thankful heart is really a sad and unfortunate thing. You know, there has never been a better time to live than right now. There has never been a better time to live than right now. The advances in technology and the advances in medicine, uh, in transportation. I rode a horse one time. It was the last time. Okay? The, the benefits in transportation, the comforts and convenience of life, it has never been better. And yet, if you listen to the spirit of the age, the message that they're selling is this has never been a worse time to live. And that's what marks our society and culture at this moment. A critical spirit of all that is around. And so, I think we realize that a thankful heart has never been about our circumstances. It has always been about the condition of our heart. Thanksgiving is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of our perspective. So in the words of the old hymn, count your blessings... Name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. So friends, this is the cure to a critical spirit. And my prayer is that this message would shape the culture of our church, that we would be marked by loving, thankful hearts who are eager to see what God is doing. And it's my prayer that this message would, would mark the culture of our homes, 
that our homes are, are, are absent of a critical spirit and marked by things like love and thanksgiving. And that would be the desire of my heart that our church would be marked by this as we stand before a lost world who are identified not by a critical spirit, but by a thankful heart that honors the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the privilege to consider uh, some of these truths from Scripture, and we ask that you would take what is said and, and, uh, and impress upon us the significance of it. No doubt, Lord, some of us owe apologies to our family members when we, when we leave from this place. Apologies for complaining and bitterness and critical spirits and and maybe we owe apologies to our fellow members for the way we've torn down. So, Lord, would you allow this passage to work on us and encourage us? And, and would it even prepare us for tonight as we gather corporately to express our thanksgiving to you for how good you have been? You are an awesome God who has blessed us in so many ways. Most of all, the hope we have in Christ and eternal life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can stand together. We're going to close together with the, the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness.